This is Sarah Bordeaux, and you are listening to PodSam, the podcast channel of Sam Magazine, the voice of the mountain resort industry. The mountain resort industry has been gathering virtually to share what we're learning and how we're overcoming obstacles during this challenging time. On this episode, we talk with the Insights Collective, a volunteer group of destination travel research specialists about travel and consumer behavior in the time of COVID-19 and how the latest trends may translate this winter season. We'll discuss where the consumer stands and how attitudes and preferences may evolve. Please note throughout this episode, speakers will reference various PowerPoint presentations shared during the original conversation. You can follow along by downloading the data at www.saminfo.com huddle. We'll start the discussion here with Sam publisher, Olivia Rowan. Thank you for joining us today for our Monday huddle. I'm Olivia Rowan, publisher of Sam Magazine. When planning this winter season, there are essentially two viewpoints that resorts need to look from, the inside view of the resort operations and the outside view of the travel consumer. In last week's huddle, we explored the outside view of resort operations and provided some actionable solutions and some ideas to get the creative juices going. And that's in a podcast out now, so you can check that out if you did miss part one on the operational side. Um, And in today's part two of this special two-part Sam huddle called Buckle Up, we look at the outside view of the travel consumer. And so um, to lead this discussion, we are pleased to have the expertise from the team at the Insights Collective, and we'll have more on them in a bit. Okay, to kick off today's session, Ralph Garrison of the advisory group and the founder of the Insights Collective will explain who and what the collective is and introduce today's discussion. Ralph? Uh, Thanks, Rick, Olivia, everyone, Uh, welcome. Pleased to be here Um, about a decade ago, people started referring to me as an industry veteran. It was about at the same time that my hair started getting a little grayer, so apparently there's some experience behind that uh, beyond the several decades that I have been involved on the destination side of the industry. My credentials then are to bring the outside-in perspective and uh, the, uh, the collection of others that have joined me over these last several months are now uh, being described as and will be uh, presenting today under the name of Insight Collective. Uh, We are uh, a a pop-up think tank and resource center really that convened in late March and early April uh, trying to figure out about the forces at play and how we as an industry could begin to put Humpty Dumpty uh, back together again. So that collaboration of veterans toward the greater good, if you will, is really about helping us understand, we collectively, this sort of perfect storm of the virus, uh, the pandemic virus now, uh, and the economic ramifications. And we originally set that goal uh, as to be uh, like till the dust settles, uh, September 15th, if you will. It's now becoming clear uh, that as the Uh, experiences of this summer unfold. Uh, Summer demand has increased greater than we expected, but the reopening and the pandemic management uh, uh, would be the word cluster with a suffix uh, of your choice. And as it becomes clear that the dust is not settling or will not be settled by September 15th, it raises questions about the forthcoming winter, thus this session and our attention. We began discussions with SE Group and uh, SAM several months ago toward those common objectives where the resort is the primary attraction in the winter 
and the circumstances have changed. But our group works with fact when we can, trying to use evidence to create a foundation. And when the evidence fails to satisfy the question, then we turn to the collective wisdom of our group and we're using a formal think tank process. Questions have been coming in, the most recent of which are related to looking forward to the forthcoming winter season, thus the subject of this scenario. So the think tank now has a question before it. It knows something like, what are the prospects for winter 2021? What can decision makers uh, do to plan and manage in this unprecedented situation? And, and specifically, what are the forces at play that should be tracked as the winter season unfolds? So that, that scenario has now been set up and a significant amount of what we have to offer will be the initial snapshot of the answer to that question as we track that process on through the balance of the summer and the fall into the winter. It's hard not to create uh, an analogy to the way that storm trackers are tracking hurricanes uh, with uh, recent weather uh, circumstances. Uh, and, and we'll be doing the same thing metaphorically uh, as the summer wanes and the winter approaches. Uh, that concludes my introductory comments. Uh, Rick, back to you to introduce uh, our panel of experts uh, and how they proceed from here. Thanks a lot, Ralph. It, it's time to set the scene for what the seven primary drivers are that the Insights Collective believes will define the coming winter. Tom Foley of Intopia and Carl Rabato of SMG Consulting. Go ahead and give us the goods on what these seven drivers are. Thanks, Rick. Um, it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, and meet with everybody and um, you know we're all in such a dynamic change one of the things that we have talked a lot about is not to think in sort of linear outcomes but to think in scenarios and you know for every destination or business in the industry to begin to think more and more in those terms what we've done is spend a lot of time looking at what we think are the the drivers of a scenario they may be a little bit different from, it, from, from every destination, but these seem to be the primary drivers that are going to shape uh, tourism and travel and so forth uh, in, the, in the next uh, foreseeable future. And so we've got it down to what we call the seven, uh, seven primary drivers. Um, and we'll go through these real quickly, but you'll get them in depth in a little bit. The first one is a varying caseload per capita, both in the feeder market and the destination market. And you'll see some interesting data on that. Um, Tom? Yeah, second is really economic uncertainty. And thanks, Carl. And hello, everybody. Uh, and, you know, it, it, traditional economic models are actually sort of failing us at the moment. And uh, consumers don't know how to respond, whether they're responding to COVID or, or the economy. So that's, that's really number two that's in your scenario you need to consider. The third one is good old-fashioned pent-up demand. And we're seeing that now in many destinations throughout the country and particularly in the West. I'm located in South Lake Tahoe and we're seeing that as I imagine you guys are also. And, and that is gonna be a key driver, no question. Local sentiment uh, is clearly an important one. A lot of these entities are publicly funded and of course you have to take care of your locals. They are the foundation for your economy and there's a lot of pushback in some destinations and others are looking for the business to return and how that's happening in your local destination is gonna determine, I think, what happens from a marketing point of view. And the one we're seeing perhaps emerge the most is uh, COVID management. How different destinations uh, manage 
manage the pandemic and its impact in the, in the tourism destination, um, whether there are strict rules, we're seeing some innovations in how different destinations manage that. Some are choosing not to manage it at all. And so we think that is also going to be a big driver in your destination scenario. Yeah, and look, looking forward as we watch tax dollars that typically fund DMOs or other marketing organizations, uh, you know, the question about defunding or refunding those organizations, how that's going to work will determine what the message is going to be, how you retain uh, brand identity and so forth. And then the final uh, primary driver that we've taken a look at is the, is the one that pro we're probably seeing the most right now, especially if you have school-aged children. And what does that begin to look like? You know, school breaks, the structure, the format, pod schools, there's all kinds of innovative hybrid approaches. Where does that all go and does it translate into demand? And we think that could be a very uh, prominent primary driver. So those really are, are the seven that we see driving a scenario and uh, how your destination uh, uses them might change from place to place, but we think those are the big ones. Tom. And I would, I would quickly add that I think that, that, that these are applicable not only at the destination level, but regionally, destination, at the retail level, the individual yeah. lodge level, these can be applied uh, irrespective of the business, but we're, we're talking about and framing it up from a destination point of view. Uh, we're going to do a quick Intopia Destimetrics look at what's going on, give you a quick situation update before the conversation uh, goes on, and some of that stuff about economic uncertainty I was talking about, the jobless claims that have taken place over the course of the last 15 weeks or so, including 1.43 million jobless claims last Thursday reported, uh, an increase, it's increased the last couple of weeks in a row after coming down, and that's just a, that's a good snapshot of what's happening week to week in the economy. Most of these are service industry jobs that we're seeing, and that gets us to over 55 million jobless claims over the course of the last same period of time. Uh, not necessarily directly tied into uh, unemployment, but we'll take a quick look at, at the three big drivers. Uh, at Dow Jones, as a proxy for financial markets, after taking a huge drop in March, it started to recover and continues to uh, move its way upward, which is positive from a consumer perception point of view, but it's questionable from a value as an economic leading indicator point of view. It's it's really more about how investors feel about the opportunity in the marketplace right now. So it's a, it's concerned to look at Wall Street. Uh, consumer confidence went down over the course of the last 30 days after improving a couple months in a row and is back down to low 90s. And that means that consumers are going to be in the driver's seat with regard to rate and visitation and how they're going to answer the call to action and what it takes to entice them. And lastly, unemployment. I, I am bold enough to put a projection in here of 11.2% for July. It was 11.1% in June. Um, I have to tell you the truth, the caveat is I have no idea because the numbers are bouncing around in such odd ways, it's really difficult to tell. But my best guess is it's gonna go up slightly. It might go up or down dramatically. So let's just take a look at what's happening in Western Mountain Ski Resorts using the Destimetrics data. Here we're looking at a six month window. We're actually starting with March, pardon me, and going through December. Everything to the left of the line is historic actuals and we're looking at occupancy here. Everything to the right of the line is on the books data. And the blue bar is this year's occupancy rate. The red uh, bar is last year's and the line going through is a year over year percent change. You don't need to be a genius to look at this chart and say that there are obviously problems on the occupancy front uh, with April and May being the weakest months ever recorded in mountain resorts. And June, we started to see pick up a little bit as a gentle reopening in the West took place. Meanwhile, a crazy reopening was happening in the Southeast. And then in July, we got a return to positive booking pace 
Uh, those bookings that are coming in are for short-term arrivals, either for in-month, four-month, or for the next 30 to 45 days out, maybe 60 total. But that's about it. People are uncertain beyond that and not willing to take a chance. Uh, so over 90 days out, cancellations continue to outnumber new bookings for arrival in those dates, and that includes the winter months ahead, uh, which I know is the focus of this group. But a couple of things, April and May 2020 rebookings went ahead and rebooked for January through April of 2021. So there is some pad there for January through April of these 2020 bookings. People were looking for winter. They went ahead to rebook to winter. And the summer rebookings we're seeing right now are actually booking for September to December arrivals. So there's a little bit of stuff going there. They're canceling for this summer. They're saying we'll come later this year. And there's another chunk that is actually going for summer next year. Uh, but the cautionary note on this is that any data for November, December, January at this point is pretty thin because the volume's low. This is earlier than we typically look at it anyway. But there's a bright spot, number one, on the data, and that is looking at ADR. So this is lodging average daily rate. And if we look at the months ahead, ADR is actually up for each of the upcoming months with the exception of December on the books and up 8% year over year overall. That is in keeping with what properties have said their rate strategy is going to be through this to try to avoid the long curve coming out of 2008-9 and repeating that. Uh, so forward-looking rates are, are holding, but very low volume. Actualized rates, once the market's getting tested as people are booking, are being forced downward. That's a reflection of that low consumer confidence I showed you earlier. And so holding rate is a great strategy, but it's harder to do uh, in reality as we go through. Um, what we are seeing is a huge change between February 15th rates for the months ahead and what we're seeing as of July, 5th, or July 31st. Rates are 35% lower for the months of May through January than they were at the, before the pandemic on February 15th. And they're coming down as those arrival dates come in. So near bookings are getting lower rates. Uh, overall rate is up 8% and that is actually, let's concentrate on the shiny spot in the spectrum because as soon as we start to look at overall revenue, it combines with occupancy with room rate and we end up getting these revenue numbers that are really dramatically down for Western resorts. Uh, it is supported slightly by those room rates, uh, but April and May complete write-offs with very, very low occupancy and down as low or uh, revenue and down as low as 97% year over year for April. Uh, the months ahead are unlikely to recover in the short or medium term. I just don't see the volume or the rate picking up in order to make this next few months have any kind of recovery to parity. Um, and again, the winter data are thin. So it, there is a, a bright spot or two as far as the actual data goes from performance. There's another bright spot in booking. Uh, what we're looking at here is how occupancy looked for each of these months as of the 1st of June in the uh, bottom bar and the uh, 30th of June in the top bar year over year. So quick description, July occupancy on the books as of June 1st this year was 17%. Last year, as of the same time, it was 45%. By the end of June this year, it had gained 13% and finished at 30. Last year, it gained 9% and finished at 54. Those aren't great numbers as performance, but what we're seeing is this positive growth in occupancy. It's the first time we've seen it since the beginning of March. It's a good number. All indications are that that continued through July. The data are a little thin right now, but we'll have it in the next few days. And so we're seeing positive occupancy growth for the short term. But if we look out to the long term, including winter, we're continuing to see occupancy decline as we go forward. So occupancy on the books, for example, for 
Uh, October was at 9% at the beginning of June. It's down to 7% now. So we need those cancellations to set aside in favor of new bookings and the new booking volume to go up. But it is a bright spot that we are seeing some pent-up demand show up, and these are actually dramatically big fill numbers uh, in, from a historical context. And lastly, the, the sort of uh, different news, and we've been looking at this 120-day window to what we considered some sort of parity, and that window has been there every time we've looked at it, whether it was as of March 15th, March 30th, April 15th, and April 30th, we kept looking 120 days out to see that parity. And, but it turns out that the parity was really falling into just what was low season and shoulder season. And as we can now see further ahead, and we get back into volume, we can see that looking into the early winter at a daily level of occupancy, we're still seeing down numbers dramatically year over year. I failed to describe this, we're really mostly concerned at daily level of rent, we're looking at daily occupancy, the daily level of granularity, and the black bars represent declines year over year in occupancy. Uh, so pardon that I didn't do that. And this is our concern. We get into the, uh, the haymaking months of December through the holidays and into January in the peak of the season, and the declines that we continue to see falling down into the far future. So as booking windows hopefully lengthen, we'll start to see this fill in a little bit, and we'll be a little bit happier with how occupancy is going, but that's gonna require some solutions on the COVID front. That is a very fast update, and I will uh, now, I think, throw it over to Barb to get the conversation started with the Insight Collective Group. Absolutely, and I'm Barb Taylor Carpenter, Tailored Alliances. I manage and facilitate customer advisory boards, focus groups, and strategic planning sessions. So I facilitate the programs that we do, and also with Jane Babylon, I manage the research library, which we started tracking articles and data in May of this year, and we now have almost 700 entries. So when Ralph talked about FactBase, our role in this, Jane's and mine, is to provide some of the facts and the uh, updating articles, not just nationally, not just specific to ski resorts, but the travel industry and in some ways global. So it's been pretty darn interesting. So we're teeing up the conversation on the seven drivers as they relate specifically to the ski resorts. And when we talked about this, it's reimagining who we are, who do we serve, both internal to the organization, internal to our communities, and the stakeholder, the external stakeholders, so our customers coming in, and how are we going to support both as we move forward? So now I am going to turn it over to Susan, and we're going to start talking about the seven drivers. Susan? Hi, I'm uh, Susan Rubin-Stewart, and I'm with SRS Consulting. I'm a travel industry and call center strategist, and I have 30 plus years in the ski industry. My role in Insights Collective is customer insights and research. And um, specifically, I'm doing some virus tracking. I know everyone has their favorite source for tracking the COVID virus, but we've added a layer on to that. And we're comparing uh, destination feeder markets to each other and the destination. A quick reminder that you can follow along with these data points by downloading the deck at www.saminfo.com huddle. Um, this looks like crazy spaghetti, but right now what we're looking at is some of the uh, Western uh, destinations. Um, we've taken the data from John Hopkins University, it's been downloaded into a Tableau. And right now we're looking at uh, cumulative 
uh, no, we're looking at the seventh day average of new cases per 100,000. So I know it looks like spaghetti, I was hoping that, but we have this ability over here to um, uh, change our filters and so forth. What I wanted to show on this particular slide is um, what, you can, what you can start to see is that with some of these um, destinations, what you can start to see is what you can really see is after July 5th, when everybody opened up and got really busy, you can see several markets that just their cases exploded. You have Mammoth, you have Vail, you have uh, well, Eagle, you have um, Lake Tahoe, and, um, and then you can see some of these other markets where Steamboat has been able to stay fairly flat. You can see that Summit County, Colorado has been able to stay flat. You can see that Tetons actually had a big increase, but they flattened it back out. And um, as you probably all heard in the news, uh, you know, they're the gateway to a national park. And so they did see quite an increase at first. You can see as some communities opened up, they really, their viruses shot up. Uh, you can see what happened here in Eagle County. Um, and a lot of it was right after July, uh, the July 4th weekend. Then we're comparing the feeder markets and we have um, many of them on here. Let me reduce this a little bit so you can see them. All, this is also a seven day average. Let me get rid of Miami because it makes the scale difficult to read. Um, but what you can start to see is, um, you know, we all know that uh, Florida, um, Arizona, and Texas did not necessarily have, they didn't have mass laws and some of them even prevented their individual municipalities the, passing mass laws. But you, can start, but you can start to see that some of those, um, or I'm using particular market uh, counties as the proxy, but you can, in, in Arizona, well, actually Phoenix is most of Arizona anyways, but you can see that the cases are starting to go down. Texas, they're starting to go down. Um, but some of those markets that previously were holdouts on uh, masks, you can see that they're starting to go down. Um, you can see some uh, um, you can see some communities that are staying have been able to stay flat. What's interesting is you can see that New York itself. I don't know if I can even get back there just to show New York. Let me see if I can see New York. As you can see, their new cases have been going down. But if we change this and look at cumulative cases per hundred thousand, New York still dwarfs everybody. But when you look at their new cases, they, as you've all heard in the news, they've really been able to drastically keep the, the new cases uh, from uh, down. So that's what we're doing is we're trying to track the feeder markets. We started out just with some uh, dr uh, drive markets and some long haul drive markets, but now we're also tracking um, uh, for the destination resorts, we're tracking uh, some of the fly markets and of course some of these markets are long-haul drive markets to many of you also. And when we look at this matching who are uh, 
theater markets are with what's going on in our communities and we can target market better. So we're really keeping track of that. And thanks Susan for all of the work she's doing, tracking the data on that. It's a perfect segue now to Chris Cares with RRC with their customer surveys. And we rely on Chris a lot for insight on that. So Chris, I'm gonna toss it over to you. Thanks Barb. Um, I'm, I'm the managing director at RRC Associates and I was one of the founding partners of the company. I've been around a long time with a company that you, you probably know of. We track data uh, heavily in the industry and uh, in travel in general. On the insights team, I'm, I'm kind of a data guy and uh, part of my role has been to try to help us develop the fact base and connect the dots. So some of the feeder market work that Susan's doing and, and some of what we're getting out of surveys is pretty foundational to the kind of information we're trying to bring forward to you. Today I'm going to present just a few slides that provide a foundation for some of the discussion that we'll be having. Um, and it's a consumer survey that, that RRC has done. We've called it the Mountain uh, Traveler Sentiment Survey. And it, it's based on a, a number of participating resorts and collecting data on mountain travelers. It's essentially a consumer survey. At this point, we're, we're going to be looking at <clears throat> results from about 22,000 responses. So we've had a really robust participation in the program, but we also are updating it constantly. And, and uh, this data is about two weeks old. We will have new data in uh, next week that'll represent over well over 30,000 participants. So very, large database and, and a lot of information there. Um, our contact at RRC is Dave Beelan. I think a lot of you know Dave, and uh, I'm just presenting a handful of slides here. If you have questions or want to dig deeper into what we have, I think Dave can be the point of contact. Uh, in terms of, of, of what we're seeing, the, the, two, the two drivers or the two scenario categories that, that I'm leading into are um, economics and uh, the, the economy overall and pent-up demand. And our survey is showing a tremendous amount of pent-up demand. 61% um, of the respondents to the survey say they're eager. 97% indicate some interest in travel. And, uh, you know, they're looking to get back in the game just as soon as possible. Um, one of the things we anticipate doing is a follow-up survey uh, to participants who, who were in this first round. So we're going to be watching very closely changes over time. And uh, this is one of, the, one of the questions that, of course, we're going to want to watch. We think the pent-up demand will actually continue to increase. Uh, when we ask the question, do you anticipate your skiing, snowboarding travel patterns changing next winter compared to your usual travel pattern, 50% uh, uh, said no. 20% said yes, and 30% said don't know. So the 30% is clearly the group that we're, we're most interested in. How do we convert them? What, are the, what, what changes are they gonna be making in the coming weeks and months? And of course, all of you on the, on the line are, are in positions to help try to, try to drive that and uh, take advantage of it. We asked about what would be the biggest concerns about starting to travel again? And this was from a, a set list um, air travel potential and COVID-19 hotspots were, were at the very top of the list, followed by an inability to social distance. 
I think one of the things we, we've called out and that we think is particularly important is this challenge of the safety of air travel. And it's, it's kind of a recurring theme in a lot of our data. Uh, it's at the very top of the list here. And it, it's clear that for the, for the destinations that have depended heavily on air travel, they're gonna be wanting to take a, a close look at, at these numbers as we go forward. Uh, further down the list, third from the bottom is inconvenience of personal health and safety measures while traveling, social distancing, wearing masks, et cetera. And what this is saying is that there's a fairly high comfort level with this, these inconveniences. These will not be the biggest concerns for people um, in terms of getting back uh, into travel. And then at the very bottom is personal, personal financial situation. And I think this is, this is important because it's indicative of, the, of the, the ski and snowboarding population and the mountain travelers in general. Uh, only 9% said that, that the, their financial situation was gonna be one of their biggest concerns. Um, we did in this survey ask about whether your, um, your job situation, and we found that 6% are, are currently out of work. So people have lost their jobs. About 3% of those 6% expect to get the job back. The other 3% do not. Do not. Um, and 11% have taken a pay cut. So on the positive side, our industry is, is seeing financial impact, but it's nowhere close to what we're seeing in the country at large. And we'll talk a little bit more about that as we go along. We also have data on fly drive patterns. And, and of course, uh, those are very important. They're regional and, and, and uh, a variety of the resorts that you all represent. Um, and, and in general, a lot of the concerns are similar between the fly and drive populations. But there is an opportunity to dig, dig deeper into these numbers as we go forward. And we asked about uh, once you're comfortable, uh, what on the first leisure trip you take, what do you expect the destination to be? One that you visited before, a new destination and don't know. 63% said a destination they visited before and 23% said don't know. So not a lot of people at least anticipating that these initial trips are going to be to new, new destinations. And of course, what that says to you all is, taking advantage of the databases you have and the customers you've had in the past, that's clearly the place to start your, your, your uh, initiatives towards next winter. Um, this is another one where we'll be watching it closely and to see uh, what happens in terms of the don't knows going forward. And then the final slide I wanted to talk to is a comparison between our destination or our mountain traveler sentiment survey results and a, and a national survey that's being done by destination analysts. And if you're not familiar with them, they are, they are doing a lot of great work in this space and they've been tracking destination travel right from the start of, of the COVID-19 pandemic. And, and they're worth taking a look at. We've been comparing ourselves to them as we go forward and we'll continue to do that. So what this graph does is it looks at their national sample and our mountain traveler sample. And the darker lines here, the narrower darker lines are our mountain traveler sediment uh, survey laid on top of the destination analyst results. And so the question is at this moment, how safe would you feel doing each type of travel activity? And at the top of the list is dispersed outdoor recreation, next taking a road trip and then skiing snowboarding. 
Now, this, the, the destination analysts didn't ask about skiing, snowboarding, but, but clearly our group is very comfortable with those three categories of behavior. At, there's pent-up demand, they're anxious to get back to it, and they, they're more comfortable with that kind of travel than national, the national audience as a whole. We then go down this list and we look at, at, at these comparisons and we, we added a category dining, out, dining outdoors at a restaurant that was not in the original study that Destination Analyst does. Relatively high comfort level with that. On the, on the right, right hand side, what you're seeing is people who say they're somewhat are very safe and on the left saying somewhat are very unsafe. So 15% are saying they're uncomfortable, uh, somewhat are very unsafe at a, at a restaurant uh, outdoors. And if we look down uh, at the red arrow, dining indoors at a restaurant, that jumps up to 55%. And I think this is another variable or question in the survey we're watching very carefully because clearly the challenge for our industry is, is as we approach winter to bring people back indoors. And we, we need to be at all levels working on trying to create an environment where the comfort level with indoor dining has increased and improved. Uh, here again, you see this traveling on a commercial airline. 61% feel unsafe towards it. And the, the responses from the mountain traveler are virtually identical to the national audience. So that's a big red flag in terms of what we're trying to deal with as an industry. And as well, attending a conference or convention, uh, and of course, traveling on a cruise line is, is, is not the business you want to be in at, at this point in time. I think indoor heaters uh, for, uh, for restaurants, I'm sorry, outdoor heaters that allow you to, to serve people into the fall and possibly even into the winter, that is a business you'd like to be in because there's going to be a lot of opportunity around that coming forward. I have a quick question for my clarification, Chris, and that is for the mountain travelers, are these uh, travelers originating in the mountain states, traveling to the mountain states, or national traveling to the mountain states? This is a, these are, are uh, people who've traveled to resorts over the past okay. year to two years. These are the databases of resorts, and they've sent the survey out to their, their, their master database. So it's broadly representative of the country as a whole. Um, there are people from all states as well as Europe and South America. In last week's huddle, there was conversation about uh, a lot of travelers are going to become regional travelers. And even for uh, resort destinations that have primarily in the past had the fly-in traffic, it, everyone's going to be looking at these regional guests. And what I find interesting is that 30% who are undecided right now, uh, I think there could be some pretty interesting conversations about how do we match our marketing efforts and who we are as a destination to that 30% and, uh, and becoming rabid guests of ours. So I find it very interesting. So we're going to now segue to uh, Jesse, who's going to talk about pent-up demand which really is woven throughout all of these conversations. Thanks, Barb. Yes, it is. Uh, Jesse True, much of my 20, more than I'd like to admit, 25-ish years in the ski industry was spent 
on sort of demand uh, generation and demand capture. Um, and so when I started to think about how pent up demand might be impacting um, all of us uh, as an industry, I really started to go back to the facts. Ralph mentioned early on a little bit about our process, but just for a little bit of clarity, we try to take things from sort of hypothesis, like there will be pent up demand, all the way to given fact, where we, we as an insights collective group um, all agree on that. We're not quite ready uh, to make that move, although uh, the more data that gets spit out from Chris and from Tom's group, uh, the more likely we are to push it there. And the reason that, that we really aren't um, all the way to fact yet is that we get those sort of uncertainties that Tom was pointing out earlier. I think it's fair to say um, that regional travel and what I'm calling sort of super regional travel um, will be back and back in a big way. Uh, so I spent a, a number of years at Copper Mountain in sort of Central Rockies, um, and I used to call it 10 hours drive time plus Texas. Um, Texas Texans, bless their heart, are basically willing to, to load the Suburban and come uh, almost uh, 24 hours or so uh, drive time, which is obviously very valuable to the Central Rockies. Um, but, you know, as I, we start to look at what we are seeing, there certainly are regional differences. And so I think you all know that the Southeast, as it opened, as Tom was mentioning earlier, saw a huge increase. And the West, slightly slower, uh, slightly sort of more reserved opening, didn't see the big pop until uh, more recently. But certainly, uh, that those uh, advanced reservation data that we were looking at uh, with Tom on the screen show you that there is a great deal of, of interest. That interest goes beyond skiing and snowboarding. Um, you know, Susan sort of continues to remind me it's a good idea uh, to diversify your offerings, make sure that you you know, you are thinking about what else people can do uh, from a skiing standpoint, not only because there's a, a reality around um, the possibility of limited uh, access to the mountain, but also because there's going to be a, a portion of that stay uh, that they are going to want to do something that may be less crowded, a little bit more organized. Um, and so, you know, the other big thing I think is, as I watch the, the chat uh, room, the big thing that's important to notice is that the the day, day visitation uh, at our destinations throughout the West, basically throughout our country, um, is extreme at the moment. Uh, there are all sorts of visual effects that you all are seeing in your neighborhoods and outside of your neighborhoods, uh, where day visitors uh, that are looking for, whether it be water parks, uh, or whether it be mountain hikes, uh, or overwhelming local uh, destinations. So I just want to make sure as we sort of start to think about how pent up demand impacts our abilities um, to manage sort of operationally, uh, which we talked about a week ago, uh, or as we start to talk about how that might impact what we market, how we market, when we market, and to whom we market, um, that we're thinking about the day visitor. Um, as we also sort of took a look at how all of this data that comes in, whether it be Susan's tracking data, where my mind immediately went to where are there feeder markets for destinations that are handling the COVID outbreaks well, that have a low incidence of disease that we may be able to market to and bring to any location. Um, and then you start to think about, okay, how are individual local communities handling it? And how do I stay ahead of um, the comfortable carrying capacity, or as was discussed last week, the COVID comfortable carrying capacity, which has been hard for me to say all week, but that they, you know, we're staying ahead of we're influencing uh, our local communities and our local governments to make sure that we know and they know 
that there's science behind what we're doing. Um, so as we sort of look at pent-up demand overall, I think the things uh, you all are doing, um, and I'm sure of it, uh, are all the things that we're thinking about. Uh, super regional travel, uh, long drives, multi-generational travel, um, and then making sure that your guests are feeling safe. Um, Chris touched a little bit on what are the things that are gonna do um, the right things for your guests in order to show that you're taking safety and security very seriously. Um, I've said this a number of times since the break outbreak, um, and that is now is the time to make sure that safety is at the forefront and you're not hiding your overall uh, cleanliness and hygiene, uh, you're putting it out front. All those things sort of wrap up into how to handle pent up demand. Um, certainly there's a lot more that this group has talked about. As Ralph talked uh, to you all about the think tank process, we put a question in front of the group, we go for data, uh, and then we look towards the, the uh, years of experience um, in our group of nine to try to uh, outline what to do about those sorts of things. And certainly this, what 2021 winter will look like is one of the ongoing things. Um, so I think with that, those things are relatively evident. Um, we can move on past pent up demand and continue to talk about that. Moving that uh, sort of far and to the right, uh, towards a fact-based decision. And back to you, Barb. One of the things that we're tracking in the library is the generational uh, differences in pent-up demand and how it is being um, looked at. And it's, in some cases, a little bit different than what I would have thought. So, so we've talked about pent-up demand. We're gonna talk about local sentiment. And we have Brian London, Carl Roboto and Chris is going to jump back in. Brian does some really interesting work uh, based out of the southeast part of the country, which I'm thinking it might be raining where he is, he is right now, and rain could be a delicate way to put it. Um, but looking at what's happening in destinations as they manage this and attempt to reopen, et cetera. So we'll go to Brian, Carl, and Chris. I'll just jump back in and say that, you know, this this topic has just mushroomed. In the last two to three weeks, you can't turn the television on. You, uh, you know, the, the discussions are everywhere at the community level in terms of the role that, that masks play. And what's happened is gradually the federal government is, has shifted their position to saying that masks are important after they originally said they weren't important. So it's become a communications challenge from day one. But I think at this point, the majority or the vast majority agree that it's a super important uh, safety uh, attribute. And in, in our survey research, it's really gone ahead of social distancing in terms of the perception of customers in general as to, as to the role it plays. Um, we, we point out the New York Times has, has, has done a pretty extensive survey with a company called Donata, 250,000 responses from around the country and they reported mask wearing at the county level. So as you start to think about your particular community and the audiences you're gonna to try to reach, the feeder markets that Susan talked about, it's a great resource to find out what's going on in those local markets. What's, what do they think the mask wearing is? And uh, I, I think then I'll turn it over to Brian to talk a little bit about what we see the future of mask wearing in terms of public policy. Well, thanks, Chris. I appreciate that. And um, my name remains Brian London. I, uh, I work with tourism marketers that have small egos. 
and uh, I first saw snow when I was 21 years old. That's how long it took. But um, that's just a little bit about me. Let me tell you what's important here about face masks is the adoption rate and saturation has just really reached the point now where nearly 80% of uh, travelers actually prefer a destination that has a type of mask mandate. Only about 10% are signaling they wouldn't visit a place because of their mask mandate. And it has to do more with their political affiliation and any sort of social norms. And, and that's really important because over time, in the past, we've seen masks have been a point of contention. Uh, but as time's gone on, it's, that's no longer the case. And we can, we can layer this, we can use this as a type of tracing paper when we think of other initiatives that have come in our industry over time and how they build up momentum and eventually reach a point where it's just universally accepted. Well, this is what's happened rapidly with mask wearing. In fact, it's gotten to the point now where we're seeing private sector and uh, public promotion agencies actually leverage this fact. I know of a very forward-looking uh, forward and forward-thinking organization for example, that offers a complimentary face mask uh, with subscription and 50% off your renewal. And so to give you an idea of uh, what a great idea promoting the fact that your community enforces uh, mask policies is, whereas once before it was a contentious issue, now it's becoming a marketing play. And for those organizations that are ready to take advantage of it, you're likely to see increased revenue in the future. And I just wanted to add that um, the New York, New York Times study did show that of, of when, when they started to look at the differences between mask wearing, by far the dominant difference was political. Uh, it, it's not ge geographic as much as it's political. And in general, uh, blue, blue customers are about 20 percentage points more likely to be wearing masks than red. So, you know, that, that's a given in terms of the audiences you're going to be working with, and it, and it really has been a major factor uh, in the evolution of, of this problem. You know, uh, Chris, a couple of thoughts. Carl Roboto from SMG Consulting in Lake Tahoe, back again. Um, the, the, the management issue, the COVID management issue, really kind of spurs two additional th thoughts for me. The first is, um, destination competitiveness. Um, and I think every destination has to consider, are we more competitive managing the mask uh, and, and, and distancing and all those issues, or are we less competitive? And I think you have to sort out where you are. There are some destinations, for example, I don't know if you saw Myrtle Beach a couple weeks ago, said, you know what, we're just open, we're done. Okay, you know, that, that, that's, a, that's a competitiveness issue. I would submit that many of the mountain destinations that we're all familiar with and we all work in, that in fact, you know, wearing a mask is, as Brian and Chris have alluded to, make your destination more competitive. And the more clearly people understand that, and, 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 and the more clearly you position it, I think it's, uh, it, it's to your benefit. The, the second dynamic is with your DMO, your destination marketing organization because the COVID management piece is beginning to shift their role. Typically the DMO has been charged with promoting the, uh, uh, you know, promoting the destination and, and all the rest, stuff like that. But now their role is becoming more and more about communicating your COVID management strategy and wear your masks and we're safe and this and that. And that's a role that's a little bit historically different for DMOs 
but you know it's one that that is is is, is they're, they're merging into um we we've kind of chuckled around our our discussions about where will be that first destination that says you know what don't come if you don't have a mask do not come you're not getting in and so forth i know that's extreme but it's a clear market position that that a destination has and w w where this is going to be is the price of entry if your destination doesn't manage this well okay you're not going to be at the top of the decision set and again based on chris's research and data so your destination's really got to grapple with this and get it managed or you're not going to be in, you're not going to be in the top decision set for people to consider so uh, uh, covid management i think is one of the key pieces that are really reshaping uh, destinations and the roles of the organizations the promotion groups within uh, destinations. Carl, I'm, I want to inject a, a quick question here. Um, well, a comment just to your point. Um, I have two seniors heading into college, one in Florida and one in Nashville. So I had to book my flights last night and it played into exactly what you're saying. It was very clear which airlines did social distancing, middle seat closure. There are only three of them. Um, and they took it the next level to point out which are new aircrafts. You really had extra layers of choosing and that was the only option for me was choosing those airlines that would do that um, and they charge a little more you're willing to pay it and all of that felt very natural to um, following what I felt was the safest way to, to travel um, but yeah I, I agree I, I got that piece of insight from our local hardware store three months ago they yeah. put up a sign that said no mask no entry yeah. and you knew what the rules were clear and I went back and talked to the the manager of the store, and he goes, "You know what? We have lost a few people, but we think this is the right way to do it." And yeah. you know what? They flourished because of that. Yeah. You know? So I I, I certainly understand your risk aversion. Right. And Delta just was in the news last night, night before, for bringing a plane back to the gate because someone refused to put a mask on, right. and they brought it back. The whole plane cheered when those two were escorted off. Um, and so I think the sentiment is there. Though my question comes to with the with the elections coming up, do do we where we're finally getting some momentum to the mask becoming more of the norm? Is do you think the elections are gonna um, cause that stand to create more of that you know standing on a political nature in some in some areas of the country? I think it will clearly define some areas i mean i live right next to nevada and nevada can be a very different place very rural very different perspectives i think the election will become a very big signal to the country about you know which this is the way it's going to go now are you going to get everybody to agree on that direction no but you're going to get consolidation of a direction and i think that's that's where that the election begins to to uh to factor into um, these things. And again, I go back and ask everybody, is your organization, your business, or your destination more competitive or less competitive with masking up, you know, with, with, with tighter masking control? And everybody has to answer that, you know, to their, to their own. But as somebody who studied destination competitiveness for 20 years, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm here to tell you, you know, it's going to play a very big role in how people perceive your destination. You, you talk, when you talk about destination, you're not talking just about the resort. You're talking about the entire resort community. What do the resorts or what is the best way for resorts to get 
their entire community on board with whatever the policy is going to be? Well, alignment is absolutely critical. You have to have what we call um, vertical alignment within a destination. You know, from the, the DMO, the resort, the hotels, the, um, you know, the restaurants, that alignment's critical. And that's a role that the DMO can now play in a leadership position to round up everybody and say, look, let's get in line and, and, and all be on the same page. And that, in fact, may lead the rest of the community and the rest of the destination. So it's absolutely critical. The, the, the vertical alignment has to be there or, or you're just not playing with a full, full deck. Well, and, and some of these decisions are being made now at city hall or town hall. You know, it's not just the role of the DMO. It's, it's actually become a, a formal decision. And what we've seen in some of the Colorado resort towns is the designation of zones where masks are 100% required and then they're required in businesses. So rather than relying on social distancing to determine when you put your mask on, the entire zone is designated. And those are decisions being made in at city council level with, with police enforcement. And the idea there is that it takes the enforcement problem off the hands of the shopkeeper. Uh, you know, they don't have to be the ones who are policing. And I would suggest that that's, if, if you're taking a leadership role in your community, you may, that's the, that's the most extreme version, but it may be where you need to go as, as uh, players in the resort industry. And I'd like to make a, a, it's a little bit of a segue, but it also builds on this conversation. And Carl, I, it's more specific to you, which is, which is a conversation about DMOs. And in a lot of ways, the role that they play in the community, uh, oftentimes, and, and Carl is, is certainly leading the charge on this, oftentimes uh, they're looked upon as purely a marketing organization when in fact, it can be the, uh, the organization that ties all the disparate parts together. So defunding, refunding, messaging. I, I think, and I know Chris has some thoughts on this, you know, the, the local sentiment issue is really falling in a lot of ways on the DMO because they become the blinking red light of demand, you know, and, and local residents, um, the political tension that's being created um, between local residents. And then the DMO is sort of in the middle of that space. And, and it can be quite, uh, quite challenging and it puts DMOs in a place that maybe they, you know, that they haven't been in before. But at the end of the day, that role of the DMO is shifting. One last point, and I know Chris has got some points that, that I'd like to make is one of the things that we're seeing emerge now between the political tension of local sentiment is linkage to ideas and issues that were pre-COVID, traffic and trash. These ideas existed but, you know, prior to uh, uh, COVID and are now kind of linked up with all these people are showing up in our town and are not wearing masks. And so it's an interesting dynamic that you know, destinations, and I'm, not, I'm speaking more to the destination than a specific resort, but I think it's critical for the resorts to be, be aware of that. And these, these, these issues are now beginning to link up, and that could be a real challenge. Well, I would just add that, that as we think about local sentiment, there's the full-time local residents, but there's also second homeowners, and they play a huge role in terms of 
driving the resort economies in these larger towns and their uh, their their views on not just masks but safety in general and how much crowding they want to see are going to be important going forward. And I think what we're seeing in a lot of the resort communities right now is very very heavy uh, heavy use. Uh, you know, and, and Jesse spoke to it at the trailheads and so on. And and we expect there's going to continue to be some pushback at least in the summer around day visitors and and this over tourism at key key sites within the communities. So local sentiment will be very important in terms of politics as, as well as uh, you know, the role that BMOs and, and the resort industry plays. Yeah, the one thing that I wanted to add to this conversation was that our industry is not the only one who's looking at what our industry is doing, right? Other industries are looking to us to see how we respond. Elected officials are looking to us to see how we respond. Uh, for me, based out of Jacksonville, Florida, you know, we were once home to the upcoming Republican National Convention, which was subsequently canceled in some part due to resident pushback on what the implications would be for all of those travelers being in the destination. Uh, another conversation that takes place in City Hall is, 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 has two parts. One is realization that destinations and resorts are not currently marketing. Right? They're not spending marketing dollars in an uncertain environment. Number two, as we saw in Tom's slides earlier, there's still pent up demand to travel to the destination. And that's causing a lot of folks in City Hall to wonder um, just if, if destination marketing dollars are even necessary, if the market doesn't take care of itself and whether or not those bed tax, lodging tax dollars shouldn't be part of general revenue and going back into infrastructure and resident services. But that's an unpopular opinion among our group, but it's important to note that these are the kinds of conversations that are taking place uh, in city halls across the country, and it behooves us to be prepared for those arguments uh, as the season opens. Uh, I, there's also um, the, the thought about the DMO as a gatekeeper, uh, irrespective of pent-up demand, and playing a role of controlling volume into the destination for the greater good and long-term health of the destination, how that plays out teaching a DMO or a DMO teaching itself how to actually uh, craft a message that says, come visit us, but maybe in a little while, as opposed to come visit us today. Um, and you know how the destination or the resort or the mountain or the lodges are gonna respond to that sort of a piece. And that goes back to Carl's comments about you know, vertical alignment. And, and when you talk about a scenario from a destination standpoint, there's really three or four core variables that each destination has. Whether you have a short-term view a long-term view, whether you have a highly regulatory or highly COVID management approach, or you don't have a highly COVID management approach, you know, whether you're going to put residents paramount or visitors paramount, these all begin to shape what your destination scenario is, is going to be like. And the DMO and the, and the collective community are, are, are going to have to grapple with those things to figure out, you know, where, where do we want to be? Are we more concerned about short-term? Do we want to look to long-term? How do we de de devise these balances? But, you know, it, 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 it's not just a clean scenario. There's, that's why we identified seven drivers. It's not one, it's very complex, and, and, but, but, but it's a good process for everyone to get involved with. Well, and Carl, those, those things you described will define a, a risk tolerance that the DMO or the destination has, and then there's a, a job to align with 
a consumer with a similar risk tolerance profile. It seems an odd time to bring this up perhaps, but we've talked about over-tourism for the last number of years. And over-tourism is a great conversation, except when one has experienced under-tourism. However, exactly to what Tom, you're saying, and Carl and Brian, where does, it's a fine line, and how do we balance that line right now with our community, really? Yeah, I, living in South Lake Tahoe, I will tell you our local residents are really struggling. You know, they know, they get the, they get it. They understand the importance of tourism, you know, but, you know, you go to a trailhead in South Shore, it's packed. I mean, and it's, it's not clean and easy, folks. It's, uh, and, and, and the local residents have learned to be political. You know, over, through the over-tourism process, local residents have learned that skill. And so it's not like, well, yeah, it's tourism over there. They've gotten a lot smarter and a lot wiser, and now they become a core constituent uh, as opposed to just the tourism industry and so forth. But I think that's opportunistic for a destination to sort of balance all that stuff out. Good. A counterpart to Carl for a moment. Uh, the destination clearly uh, could be the champion of the broader resort community. But if I put together this conversation so far, and if it's true that there is plenty of demand forthcoming in the winter, like we've seen in the summer, <clears throat> the resorts ought to be thinking about their uh, supply that is what they can accommodate, as I saw they that you are this last week. But uh, I believe that it will be largely determined by what health and regulatory agencies find out in terms of COVID case management as winter season comes on. And as that goes through the municipality, it's going to really have to do with how much they allow you to open up your supply to meet that demand. That falls on you guys, the resorts, and I would not rely on anyone else to champion the message of needing to have caseload down by very aggressive positive management in this fall and pre-winter booking season. So you guys start the season as clean as you possibly can uh, with as much supply capacity as the regulatory agents will allow. And then you've got to fight the battle another day. But if you're success depends upon somebody else's behavior, I think it's up to you to make sure that you're doing your part to rally the community toward that end. And Barb, as we head to this uh, last segment on school, uh, the, the school breaks and, and uh, schedule format, um, I wanna work in, so we have a lot of uh, resorts here who are not destination, they're drive to. Uh, they are the hometown, um, feeder resorts uh, who are going to play, according to a lot of what you've been talking about, a really important role because it's going to be the comfort level of a lot of skiers to go to where they know the facilities are not going to try a new place. So um, as we go into this next topic, let's let's think with their lens layered over it and um, how they might take advantage of it. Absolutely. And actually, Ralph, I'm going to bring you back in on this conversation uh, because internally we've been having this conversation and what does it mean we looked at it as breaks structure format but it is a much wider conversation than that so mr garrison the uh, the seven points that you see uh that the uh collective is tracking here are the primary the secondary ones that we have as a sort of a situation assessment include the election that has been already talked about but it also includes violence and 
uh, and this this uh, sort of uh, social unrest that we've got, it recognizes that people are working from home and may continue to work from home, which opens them up for travel and extended travel and midweek. And it focuses upon school and the possibility that school is also moving digitally, both of them potentially impacting the way that people's schedules work on a year-round basis and creating huge opportunities to repurpose both the at-home workers and their school-age students to the benefit of resort supply and demand and the like. It's an opportunity that would have to be cultivated upon, uh, but the changing profile could create huge opportunities uh, for those of you who can attract a new market uh, for midweek weekend. It also may change the patterns around traditional holidays where families could only travel <clears throat> around school breaks, but school breaks are going to become less tangible uh, less finite uh, than they have been in the past. So you have an opportunity to probably redirect high demand periods to what has traditionally been low demand periods. That ought to affect your supply side capacity as well, right? By balancing your supply from what has been true to what may be true in this new reality going down the road. These are one set of things that we're tracking as we hypothecate what the trend will be, but we have to see it with evidence-based data before we can report it up to those of you who are decision makers. So, so that's the start of the conversation about the role that schools and school breaks then are going to play in people's travel behavior and how that's going to work for resorts, whether they're day areas or destination areas. Uh, Ralph, I'll just add that we are on the data side seeing an uptick in midweek stays relative to weekend stays that is greater than what we would expect to see if we were to extrapolate this out to normal behavior. Uh, and, and that's due in part to consumer behavior and sort of this isolation travel and wanting to go when things are less busy and so forth. But we also believe as we look forward that it is at least in part um, anecdotally attributable to the fact that the kids are at home and it is easier for them to travel. And, and like you say, we'll have to see that play out in the data and be able to, to clearly tie them together. But thus far, it's more than we would just uh, attribute to uh, isolation travel. And to live when you look at the destination, the um, smaller regional resorts, they have two very key dynamics that have shifted this their way, which could present a real strategic opportunity. Um, you know, when compared with some of the major resorts, the first, as we've talked about, is the changing school situation that could offer a tremendous opportunity and you might want to begin to think about how to leverage that op opportunity the second thing is as chris's data showed um you know most of you are going to draw from your proximity markets these are people that can shoot up and down from their house to your place um and 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 you know the complexity of a big destination like tahoe you know make people begin, begin to say you know what i want to do a simpler thing and so i think there's opportunity um, for a lot of the uh, smaller re resort areas, th th this is the moment for you guys. Yeah, and, and in fact, those, um, those higher uh, visitation midweek relative to weekend things are showing up more in regional drive markets than they are in peer destinations. And the other thing that we know, and I think, Barb, maybe you can confirm this, is that uh, what is an acceptable drive distance has kind of moved from around the 420 mile mark to 500 plus miles. Uh, which is a pretty significant increase and also benefits markets that are really equipped to handle drive. Yeah, that's absolutely correct. It has be it, it's become 
more willing to drive longer miles uh, as opposed to flying. So, and that those numbers are holding steady right now. And I track AAA, I track a couple of others. So that is absolutely true. I sort of feel compelled to say um, that it is, we have been working at the NSAA level, certainly at the regional level, and basically throughout the industry, how to continue to try to make skiing and riding accessible to more and more people. Um, I think there's an opportunity uh, to work um, in a competitive way against those folks who are possibly publicly traded or large, large corporations who are gonna have to have some economic force uh, that drives price up. Um, and the smaller regional destinations um, may very well have a significant advantage to keep this, our lifestyle uh, available to the masses and, and to keep price down. Um, there is a sort of worrying cloud over my head at times with regards to the forces that Ralph and I have talked about for a number of years in my past career, and that being supply being one thing, demand being the other thing, pent up as we were just talking about, the logical economic reaction would be to take price. Uh, I worry about skiing get too, getting too far elite, um, and I think you know there may be an opportunity to take advantage of uh, your brethren uh, and work locally uh, to keep that option open. This is a perfect opportunity for me to amend all of the things that I was about to say uh, in one summary. Thank you very much for having us. Uh, we are working hard uh, on the greater interest of the industry, and this is the first announcement of this particular um, track that we, are, that we are going on now for these next several months as we forecast these two different scenarios, several different scenarios for demand this coming winter season. So, so uh, every week internally, every two weeks to our membership group, who are all volunteers, by the way, um, we are updating the reality against the models and adjusting it, knowing that only as this process goes through will those truths become supportable with the kind of fact that many of you in this room need to feel comfortable when you are being decision makers on behalf of your communities. So that's our job, right? To, to, to give you some solid data to make tough decisions uh, about which we do not now, but we will as time goes on because we're smarter together than we are individually. We'll be staying on top of the data as things evolve. During future conversations, we'll once again be discussing operational changes for departments such as ski and ride, tubing, marketing, and more. The conversation will continue to evolve as we gather more data and more insight. If you'd like to join the Huddle conversation, email huddle at saminfo.com. The September issue of Sam Magazine is coming soon. Subscribe or renew your subscription to Sam Magazine by August 15th, and you'll receive a free face mask. Compliments of the folks over at Blackstrap. www.saminfo.com slash subscribe. Our theme music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. The Pod Sam Advisor is Alex Kaufman, the Wintery Mix Podcast Guy. I am Sarah Bordeaux, and thank you for listening to Podzam.